Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've been doing this for about six years now, a little more, and there are hundreds of them uh, archived. If you go to batgap.com, you'll find them on all categorized in various ways under the past interviews menu. This show is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So thanks to those who've been supporting it, and if you feel like making a contribution, there's a PayPal button on the site. And it's made freely available to anybody who wants to watch it. There's no obligation or anything to, in order to watch it. So my guest today is Jürgen Sieber. Jürgen lives in the UK, originally from Germany, and he's a fascinating fellow. You began meditating, Jürgen, in 1969, right? Yeah. Was it TM or some other form of meditation? I started with TM. I have a uh, feeling you did because you know, everybody was learning TM in those days. Yes, that's right. There was <laughs> sort of thing that was available at yeah. the time. And, and you mentioned that in 1973 you did a six-month course of some sort. That Those were also offered in the TM movement. Was that within the TM movement? The no, that wasn't, no, no, that wasn't a course. It was just me being totally dedicated to lock myself in my room and not get out until I had a long sort of section of meditation behind me. Ah, I, and, I was uh, very keen to uh, to reach the apex. <laughs> yeah. Quickly. Hopefully that went well for you. That can be a little dangerous for people sometimes, you know, if they're not prepared for that. It went wrong, actually. Yes. Did it? Yeah, you mentioned in your bio that there were some negative side effects. Yes, I mean, the thing was, until then I read a lot of books and I... I read about enlightenment. I had no idea what it was all about. I expected, I didn't even know what to expect, but I thought I needed to know, I need to have the experience everybody's writing about in these books I read and talking about. And I thought that that is a very desirable goal. So I started meditating on the light, on the on mantras, on the TM mantra, on all sorts of things. And I, I spent, I got up at four o'clock in the morning and I meditated till about nine and then I went to college. Then I sometimes came back in the evening, meditated. And I did this for about six months. But in the meantime, I noticed I became really aggressive, frustrated. I had bad experiences and I thought it had the absolute opposite effect of what I was hoping for. Do you understand so, now why that was happening? Yes, I think I actually did get into some quite dark areas. And one of the signs was, and I haven't really talked much about it in the past, I was painting at the time because I was an art student. And at the time I was trying to deal with my inner demons and, and my fears and all sorts of things. And I started doing a painting of some demons. I literally did a representational painting of demons and I became very fascinated. Mm. And the more I became fascinated, the more I was drawn into this sort of almost dark art. And my meditation went into that sort of direction because all sorts of anxieties came out. And, uh, and then one night I went, set it down to meditation and I found the painting I had finished uh, fell off the easel an ashtray at that time, was, I was still smoking, was cut up, folded right across the room with all the fag ends strewn across the floor. And I suddenly experienced an incredible chill. And 
you have to bear in mind, I didn't believe in anything supernatural at that time. To me, anything supernatural, that was just sort of uh, superstition. But when I came into the room, there were no windows open. It, it was very chilly. The painting was on the floor and the ashtray on the opposite end of the room, which was sort of four meters from where I left it. And then I experienced this uh, fear. And, and then I didn't know how to deal with the fear, and I was quite scared. So I found a book by Krishnamurti on the bookshelf, <laughs> and I opened it randomly, and there was a chapter on fear. <laughs> and as I read that, I suddenly had a sense of clarity. And after that, I decided the whole thing is bonkers. And I'd rather be where I was before, before I started meditation, and, and just not have anything to do with it. So I was quite happy with the decision, because that meant I could go back to my old hedonist student days. You know, <laughs> the parties, do all the things I, I really enjoyed, and sort of turned my back completely to to the whole idea of enlightenment, of meditation, and so on. And then that went on for some time, and I was getting more into the stride of being myself. But then something happened, and that was a crucial thing, because outside my student flat where I lived, there was on Wednesdays at a market, and I always went to the same place, they had a beautiful, rye, fresh rye bread, which I bought, and uh, some very strong tilted cheese, and I made it a habit on Wednesday, I would have a really sort of nice breakfast. So I cut a big chunk of my fresh bread, layered a big so half-inch slice of cheddar cheese, brewed a very strong cup of coffee, and then I started munching into this breakfast. And suddenly, as I was holding my fat sandwich, I lost my relationship with my sandwich. I couldn't figure out who was actually holding it. And then, as I was looking at my hands, I, I suddenly thought, who do these hands belong to? And I couldn't, I lost all connection with my body and, and the reality I was in. And then suddenly the most extraordinary thing happened. I lost uh, any sense of identity and I didn't know who I was and in, instead I was suddenly, the whole light, the whole room turned into a blinding light and I was totally disembodied and I entered into this space of, the only way I can describe it is clarity. Everything became clear and sharp but to such an extent that I was just not able to find anything I could compare it with. It was just an absolute clarity and uh, it was really absolute. There was nothing, no further I could go. And this incredible light sort of filled everything and I suddenly realized that is the essence of, of what I am. You know, there's nothing before and nothing behind, and that's just it. Yeah, it's it's almost impossible to describe. The only the only attributes, I couldn't find any attributes what I could give to it, and the only attributes I could find was sort of 
neutrality. There was no bias, no, no for, no against. It had no attributes whatsoever. It was just absolutely clear. And that was not the only thing. The moment I entered into this space, I was overcome by waves of ecstasy. And they were almost painful, you know, as if I was stripping sort of layers of any false ideas or anything other than this clear light, as if it was sort of stripped off me in very quick succession. And the more it was stripped, the more ecstasy I felt, you know, until I was uh, totally succumbed by it. And I remained in, in this space for, I can't remember how long, but quite some time. And then I was overcome by um, incredible waves of love. And I felt that was a moment when I was returning to some sort of sense of normality. And the interesting thing was, when this happened, it was a bright summer day. And it was quite bright, but it felt when my senses returned as if I was returning into, a, into a, the middle of the night. It, was so, it felt so dark. And then as soon as I got my heap of flesh together again, I sort of fell into it. I was overcome with incredible emotion. You know, and I, I, I went to a, into a crying session for no reason other than that my body was trying to deal with with what had happened. And then gradually I became normal, but not quite, because I was in a state of peace. I, I couldn't even express what it was. It was just a complete stillness. There was nothing moving. And I, I got out of my room, and it, it was as if I had arrived for the first time on this planet. And everything was new. Everything felt as if it's, I've never seen it before. It was as if I've been on this earth for the first time, as if I had descended into an alien world. And it was incredibly peaceful and beautiful. And there was a radiation coming from everything I saw, which gave me a sense of belonging. So this went on for some time. I didn't know what to say to anybody. To, I couldn't talk to anybody about it. I just quietly walked around with this sense and, and tried to get my head around the art school. But I just went to art school. I listened to the lectures and I went home again. I was just not able to participate. Then fortunately, in a way, this gradually faded. And I came back to normal, but then some months later, I started having these spontaneous out-of-body experiences. And the first one was one which I wasn't prepared for at all because I was lying in my bed. That happened before, this tremendous experience happened just before I got married. And then and I was still on my own in my student accommodation. And then after we got married, we moved to another town, and then I had the first out-of-body experience, which was a total dislocation from the place I was. I went to sleep, or I was asleep, and suddenly I was wide awake in front of my parent, my mother's house. And uh, there was no doubt about it that this was a real 
the real thing. I felt I was physically there. The only difference was I had a 360 degree vision, so I could see all around me. And the other curious thing was I didn't have a body. <laughs> and the body sort of reluctantly appeared when I wanted to have a body, you know, so I materialized. And then as soon my first panic thought was what what is happening here, you know, what's going on, how do I get back? I was quite sure that I shouldn't have been here. And and this pulled me back into my body and I started, I woke up my wife and I told her um, what has happened and she just said, I'll go back to sleep. There was and so, so that was the beginning of it all. And, and then I became curious, there was no literature. I went to the library um, trying to find out whether I had a brain seizure or a problem, you know, a physical problem. And eventually I came across a book section which gave this parapsychology and I wasn't really interested at all in this subject. But there was a mention of a kind of doppelganger phenomena and I thought maybe that was it. And then somebody gave me a book of Castaneda, which was called A Separate Reality, where he actually in great detail described what I had experienced. So that, that to me was a clue to start seriously get interested in it. And then we moved to England, and as soon as we had moved, and I sort of lost my, came into a new environment, I started having spontaneous out-of-body experiences from then on, which happened almost on a first on a, on a sort of weekly basis, you know, and, and quite often, some were very short, but I became, as I started taking interest in them and, and reading books about it, I was able to to control them more. So that was, was the start of, of the journey, if you like. Yeah, great. Would these out-of-body experiences happen while you're doing things, like driving your car or walking down the street, or were, were they more when you were in a meditative kind of state? Yes, I mean, they happened usually when I, went into, when I was in a meditation state. My meditation completely changed after I had this experience. I didn't do any TM or anything like that. It was just a kind of devotional practice, you know, where I, I focus on a sense of gratitude, if you like, mm -hmm. which was more sort of heart-related, you know. Gratitude to whom? Gratitude to what I had experienced, in a way. This, this experience was sitting with me from day one it happened. It, it never went away. It was as if somebody put up a lighthouse in my life and it was always there and I, I knew it was there, I knew that was a beacon. And later when I, I totally lost my way in a way because I was bringing up a family and having a career and I was more focused on very materialistic things, I still had the knowledge of this otherness. And the best way I can describe it was that it's never left me. It was, the word I found for it was, I, I refer to it as a silent companion, an, an aspect of beingness, which was with me all the time, and which I could rely on in lots of ways, but it didn't have a, 
It was like a presence. It was the best way I can describe it. It was as if somebody was walking around with me all the time. But you eventually discovered that it wasn't someone other than you. It was your own inner silence that you were yes. sensing. Yes. Yeah. That didn't happen until until much later. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I had that actually happened in 2013 when I went on to a meditation retreat. Until then, I always referred to my silent companion, and the silent companion did actually make appearances. In, in deep states of meditation, and one in particular, I entered a spontaneous state of samadhi, where this presence was accompanying me in this state. It was uh, shortly after I came out of hospital in 2011. That was a very powerful experience, which I also documented in my latest book. And then in 2013, I went into a solitary retreat in, in the Scottish mountains in a little mountain hut by myself and I was deliberately meditating and and keeping a record of the meditations and then after four or five days I had uh, the best way to describe it is like a recall experience you know I don't even know whether it's an awakening experience it was a recall experience where I felt what I really was and I had forgotten, all my life I had sort of forgotten really that I was that, that thing. And then that was a moment the silent companion merged with me. That mm. was a moment where I felt this, is, this otherness or this entity which was very, very closely related to me was actually who I was. And yeah. it was nothing more like a, like a recall. And, and this made me feel that that is what everybody actually has at the root of their being. It made me feel that I wasn't anything special. I was just in a state where I could remember my authentic self. Yeah. And, and everything before then was just, you know, a smokescreen. Yeah, sometimes in the traditional literature, enlightenment or awakening is referred to as a sort of remembrance or a recall kind of thing. At the very end of the Bhagavad Gita, Arjuna says to Lord Krishna, I have regained my memory, essentially, of who I, who I am. It's precedented, this sort of thing. Yeah, this is how it felt. I didn't have the, the same experience I had the first time. I had to, I have to say all these experiences which come up the state of samadhi or deep meditation. Each experience is completely different, I found. And, and it's, uh, it's infinite, I think, the type of experiences you can have. And this one was quite different. It was preceded by a meditation the previous day where I was faced with an abyss of reality. I sunk into a state of depersonalization where I could not, similar to the one I had the first time, but this time I fell into an abyss of reality, you know, which became increasingly real and more real and more real, and I felt increasingly threatened by this reality, and I felt, I felt if I go too far, there can only be God. You know, and I was afraid. 
I was afraid of this enormity I was about to to be faced with, and all my life I wanted I wanted it, but now I was at the threshold. I was incredibly scared of it. I thought if I go a step further, I will lose everything, and I just can't. And it was too terrifying, and it put everything into question. So. That was a meditation I had in the morning, and I felt I, I just needed to go a step further. And the only way I can do that is to allow this incredible, fearsome entity, which could only have been God, to obliterate me completely. And then there would be nothing left of me, and it was terrifying. So I, I then almost prayed to get my ego back. <laughs> <laughs> so I run, I went back and I tried to reassemble my identification and I took my camera out, I took photographs and tried to fix some sort of arbitrary identity which I could deal with, which I could control, which was the darkness of myself and that suddenly felt the desirable thing, you know, to be and, and to enter into again and I didn't feel I was ready for this thing. Now, um, at the same time, of course, I felt like a great coward, you know, because I've been meditating for 40 years. And, and when it came to the crunch, I didn't have the guts or, or whatever was needed to, to take the step into the abyss, you know. And, and before I was often told or shown that you need really need courage and fearlessness, if you want to walk this path, you have to lose fear. And I felt I had lost all my fear. You know, I lost the f my fear when I was diagnosed with cancer. And I realized uh, I was not afraid because, in fact, I was elated in a, in a perverse sort of way. And the fact that I wasn't afraid anymore from, of something which was quite serious made me feel as if I had conquered fear. Okay, and I was not afraid of death or dying and so on. And then that went away. I came out of hospital. I had another very incredible experience, which I wrote in Vistas of Infinity, which was my silent companion calling me into this meditation. But this time, when I was in Scotland, and I went back, I went into the abyss, I had this fear and the fear controlled me. And then the next day, I spent the rest of the day regretting, basically, that I failed after spending all my life aiming for this to happen, or wanting this to happen. And then the next day, I started meditating, and in the end I wrote a book about it, because I kept a journal all for the whole week. I, I journaled every every food thing I went through it and the book was called quoted at the 10 minute moment because that is what yeah that's what it was all about and the next day it I started off very gently it was a very beautiful day I felt an incredible love and it was almost as if during the night something was stripped away from me and I was free I felt really free and I felt good and the meditations went really well. And then I sat in front of my hut 
and I looked at the landscape and I, I felt this incredible peace and stillness and it was beautiful an incredible contentment and then suddenly I noticed this what I thought was the sun falling on the grass and it lit the grass up and I thought how beautiful you know what a beautiful light this is and suddenly I realized the light sort of was cascading and laying like mist all over the uh, landscape outside my hut and then I, I noticed that it wasn't the sunlight it was it was a I could see everything burning from within I could see it as energy and this spread out it came out towards me and as I looked down on myself I noticed my body was made out of light and this trivial thought came into my head which which made me think oh I must be enlightened <laughs> and then and then I had this incredible experience which I referred to earlier and this was so powerful I couldn't even bring myself to find words for it I had the experience of infinite pain as well as infinite pleasure and, and the two things were, were just combined into one and I noticed by looking at my watch that only lasted about 10 minutes the experience but it was it was totally overwhelming and and that was it after that I felt the sense of separation had totally disappeared and there was no way I could get it back you know and when I wrote the book which was nine months later published it I noticed that was still the case and I couldn't imagine how I could get this alienation back it was just not happening to the extent that I can't even remember who I was yesterday there's no no person persona I can assemble around this awareness which I could claim to be me so this has disappeared now and now it's three years later and what I'm finding is it is a very very natural state of being and I'm very convinced very very convinced that that's what we all really are and everybody everybody is that and for some unknown reason we are not having the recall we are not having the memory that connects us to our our true identity when you say this has disappeared now uh, what do you what has disappeared well this sort of sense of uh, that i am something other than a, a person or an an identification with something something personal you know i'm an illustrator for example yeah. you know commercial illustrator all these identifications which i thought i am which build up the persona we we think we are all this sort of is irrelevant it doesn't have any meaning it doesn't carry any weight anymore so if people were to refer to me and say to me are oh, you really bad illustrator or something I wouldn't know how to identify this that so that's basically what's happening because 
it's more a matter of seeing a bigger picture, living in a in a, in a being beingness. It's the only way I can describe it. Is it's always there. So would it be fair to say that you know, for all those years, and we'll we'll talk about the intervening years uh, later in this interview, but for all those years where you had all those experiences and out-of-body things and lucid dreaming and all that stuff, there was still very much an identification, a sense of I, I am having these experiences. Yes. Uh, whereas this thing you just talked about, the identification dropped off. In fact, the, the day before that, it was like, I am afraid. I, I don't want to let go of who I am or what I am, and, and yeah. God is too much. He'll, he'll gobble me up. But then once you had relaxed into that transition the next day, the sense of I dropped off, and, and identification or definitions of yourself as anything other than being or presence dropped off and mm. simply haven't returned over the past yes. several years. Yes, that's that's the state now, and that's what I find is actually the norm, the uh, ground state of human beingness. Yeah. I find I arrived at the point in a way where I, I can safely say I'm human. And so and this whole thing that you just described, even though you described it in the past tense, this happened to me this day, and then the next day this happened. It's an ongoing thing. It's not really past tense. It's just your natural state of of living yeah. now. Yes, yes, that's that's it. You know, I have to say the the whole episode in between that happened with my out of body experience, they were actually quite relevant. I find in, in my training, and I didn't discover how relevant they were until I wrote the book. You know, because my one of my daughters asked me when I, I had several diaries sort of filled up. She she asked what they were, and I said they're my out of body experiences, mm -hmm. and. She said, oh, I'd quite like to read it, you know, why don't you type it all out? So I thought, yeah, that'd make a good... And that was the first time I started reading them again. And I started typing them. I, I realized over the years there was a, an inner programming going on, an inner teaching. And I literally had a teacher who appeared during my out-of-body experiences who was training me because I didn't belong to any sort of yoga school or anything like that. And this teacher has, he was a Chinese master, he appeared in my out-of-body experience and he trained me for six months, he sort of groomed me. Let's set the stage a little bit because, you know, we haven't really talked about your out-of-body experiences, but you're, now you're alluding to them. But after that first one you had during sleep where you were in front of your mother's house, you then went on to have decades worth of out-of-body experiences, hundreds and hundreds of hours if you add them all up, yeah. and all kinds of amazing, clear uh, experiences of all sorts of dimensions and realms and all, you know, after-death realms and all kinds of things that were going on, even, even hell realms. Just, um, and this went on for years and years and years and years. I've interviewed a couple of people who, have had, who talk about out-of-body experiences, but it's not... Even though it's kind of everybody knows the term and it's kind of commonly understood, for some reason it hasn't been too common on this show. Perhaps because, oh, I'm just guessing, but maybe people who are interested in out-of-body experiences aren't really interested in enlightenment as their main priority or as their main goal. They just want to have interesting experiences. Do you think that might be true? I don't know. I, I've belonged to a Facebook group of it's called Astro Travelers. Mm -hmm. And 
people who are regular people there. I find they're very spiritual people. I'm sure they are, but how is it, you know, if you think of astral travel, it's sort of like, okay, my body's going to stay here, and my subtle body is going to go there. Uh, yeah. But how does that relate to self-realization, which is not a matter of separating subtle body from gross body, but really a matter of discovering something much more fundamental than either, and, yeah, I and think living in from that foundation? The, the main strengths I've found is the fact it's a very profound realization that you are not the physical body. Mm -hmm. So it really it, drives that home. Yes. So that is, a, that is one experience most of the people who are, call themselves out-of-body experiences share. They, they have all made the fundamental experience that they are no longer see themselves identified with the physical body. And that, I think, is a very, very vital step on the path. And that can be very good. But do I, they go on to identify with the subtle body? Yeah, so that's when I started having experiences of higher dimensions. And it's a bit like in the theosophy, where they divide the, the realms of consciousness up into the astral, the mental, and the spiritual regions. And of course, these can be experienced. And what I did is basically, I started when I had out-of-body experiences, I started using them for meditation. So instead of meditating in my chair, I was sitting in my astral body, in my astral chair, and I was meditating. And this is a very, very powerful experience because it's a bit like launching a, record, uh, a rocket from space where it doesn't have to overcome the gravity. Mm. Okay? So it doesn't burn any fuel. So basically, uh, thoughts become instant reality. And the first discovery I made was that if I use a mantra OM during this meditation uh, sessions in my out-of-body state, it would immediately catapult me into higher states of consciousness. And this is one thing which I explained to the group, and people have confirmed that when they use when they do astral travel and they use the OM meditation, they immediately get into a higher elevated state of consciousness. And that has sort of, this has suggested, has a little bit caught on and spread. And many astral travelers now use that, because you have to bear in mind, out-of-body experience can become really boring if once you get used to it, in a sense, because you are limited by your imagination, you are limited by who you are. And it can, and this is what, is what happened to me. I felt I reached the ceiling. I met these in, incredible places and these wonderful people and, and these astral realms, but I felt I was limited. And whenever I tried to go higher, I hit, literally hit a ceiling. And I'm not the only one who has experienced this. I read about Robert Monroe, who was an out-of-body experience. I wrote a book. Um, journeys out of the body, one of the first pioneers, he came across the ceiling phenomena himself. And uh, when I reached the ceiling, it was literally like a, like a, a plastered ceiling, ornamented ceiling. I used to punch my way through it in order to get to a higher level. Everything takes on a very symbolic meaning and the sim symbolism becomes actually physical, physically real. Because when you're in an out-of-body state, the environment appears to be as physical as our environment here.
but it's on a different level, really. So you work just as hard to get through a ceiling as you would work here. And I literally ripped the plaster off the ceiling in order to get through the next level. And I figured that was the way the mind understood that I had a desire to, to break through. So the symbolism actually became a reality, okay? And you could work with these to, to go through other levels. It's quite difficult to explain, but these are tricks which you can use in order to achieve higher levels. But the most important thing is it has to be accompanied with the right kind of feeling. If the feeling isn't there, then nothing really happens. And in 1980, I had this series of breaking through ceilings, which ultimately, that was after I had this training by my inner master, this Chinese guy I mentioned in my first book, that he helped me then to break through the ultimate ceiling. And that then in this out-of-body state, I again reached the state of clarity, okay? But by a completely different route. The first one was a spontaneous experience. The second one was an, an inner experience, an inner journey, where I went through non-physical realities, which felt just as physical as a reality here now. But they, the consciousness expanded and the realities, the realms became increasingly more glorious and more strange and more fascinating. And in the last level, I was accompanied into the state of clarity again. But this time, the way I experienced it was that I was standing at the shore of an infinite ocean of light. And there were waves of light crashing in. And it felt just like standing on the beach, but everything was made out of light. And each wave which crashed in on me triggered an ecstasy until I went through a series of ecstasy. And then I, until then I entered the state of clarity again, which was indistinguishable from the first experience, the same state, you know. And then the third time was in Scotland, which broke the camel's back, so to speak. <laughs> and then it was unmistakable that that is now the status quo, that is what human beings are, that's what we are really. Everything else is an illusion, you know. Yeah, that leads into a question. Some people will remember Ramana Maharshi saying that, and, probably, and many others I'm sure, saying that anything which comes and goes is not the reality. You know, there's that, that saying in the Gita, the unreal has no being, the real never ceases to be. And therefore, one should not seek after experiences which come and go. One should, you know, make one's priority the realization of that which always is, which never comes and goes. So there's so many points I want to discuss with you, but let's let's discuss that one for a minute because you know there are a lot of people who study Vedanta and uh, read Ramana Maharshi, and, and they might be thinking what you just said, which is all these levels are ultimately an illusion, and they might be wondering, well, why bother with them then if they're ultimately? Why not just skip right to that which never comes or goes, which which always is? Yes, I, I, I've thought about this a lot, but I think there's basically uh, people have individual parts, you know, and I think my part is I'm, I'm an artist, 
you know, I'm a very visual, experiential person. When I connect, even before I consider the outside world as anything spiritual, I connected with it from a visual, emotional point of view, you know, as an artist. And my inner experiences sort of reflected that. And I felt there was a natural attraction to explore the inner worlds in much the same way as I explored the physical world. You know, so I felt that there was an attraction uh, along this path and a fascination because the worlds I discovered in there were incredibly rich and beautiful and fascinating. Of course, they were not any spiritual realization. They were more like a world of enhanced entertainment, if you like. But I, especially in my second book, I started using these as a, as a communication of consciousness, as teaching, consciousness teaching me. So I took these very seriously. And, and whenever I had a question, very often consciousness would draw me into an out-of-body state where I found the answer. You know, and they said, uh, I mean, it started from very trivial questions when I, want, when I was asked to do an illustration about medieval knights. And I, I wondered, what, do they, what did they look like? You know, I wonder whether they are right when I looked at the reference books. So the next night I had an out-of-body experience where I found myself on a battlefield of medieval knights. And I, I was totally conscious and I studied uh, the seam of the dress, what color it was, you know, how they rode the horses. And I, I was just looking and taking all the detail in. And then I went back and, uh, you know, I had a clear picture of what was like. And of course, there were plenty of occasions where I used um, these information, which people refer to as the Akashic records and things, where you, can, where you can glean all sorts of information. And sometimes they are only, you know, a thought away. You know, for example, I mentioned that before on my website, in my book, I was illustrating a book on deep space, and the editor asked me to supply an uh, illustration of the Big Bang, and I asked him uh, what did it look like, and he said, how should I know? You are the artist, you know, nobody knows, nobody was there, you know. And I thought, I can't possibly do an illustration of something that I don't know what it looks like. So the following night I had an out-of-body experience, and I, I called, take me to the Big Bang. <laughs> and no sooner had I said that, when I was suspended in a, in a black void. But I didn't see a big bang. I saw, or I heard four sounds. And these sounds were sort of feeding back on each other. Okay. And that was it. And then I went back and then I figured, okay, there was no big bang. There were four sounds, but what may have happened is there was a feedback mechanism like when you hold a microphone in front of a speaker, the feedback me mechanism results in a big bang. And I, I went to phone up my editor and I said, ah, what about if the big bang was initiated by four sounds and there was a feedback mechanism and it exploded and it 
cause the Big Bang. And he said, no, 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 you know, it wasn't like that. Just draw a picture of a Big Bang, you know, how you imagine it. <laughs> so that was the story. But I found after that, it is actually possible to glean information during an out-of-body state, and there's literally no limit to the information you can access because what we're dealing with is a universal mind. And we are just separating off a small section of the universal mind, which we call our own, you know, and we can, uh, we can get experiences. But, but this sort of entering the, the Akashic mind or the universal mind, we have unlimited potential. If he, if he wanted to, you know. Yeah. But of course, there was never really enough time to follow, or not even the interest to follow it in detail. So later, after 2008, I decided, I take note of, I wasn't, I wasn't really interested in out-of-body experiences. I was more interested in meditation, you know, and, and reaching a state of stillness, you know. But when they happened, I, I saw them as invitations by the greater consciousness to draw my attention to certain aspects. And, and one aspect I was drawn to was to be familiarized with certain aspect of the non-physical reality because there was so much ignorance about it and so much speculation. And I started taking notes and therefore I wrote the book uh, Business of Infinity you know, how to enjoy life and you're dead, basically, because it was a cross-section of, of what realities we are likely to find when we die. Mm. And I found this is an important work because people, when we have no, nobody has got a clue of what's going to happen. We're all sitting on a train and not knowing where the station is and when the train will arrive. And then there's a big blank screen and nobody knows. There's only speculation and beliefs. And some of the beliefs I've come across are quite wrong, really, in my experience. And some some beliefs are, are devastating, you know, to humanity, to sure. civilization. I mean, there's people who believe that when you die, that's it. You know, you're snuffed out like a candle. Um, and there are spiritual people who believe that, actually. I, I've interviewed a number of people who say, well, there is no reincarnation because there is no person ultimately. And so if there's no person, how could there be reincarnation? Because you know, there would have to be somebody to reincarnate, some kind of kernel of individuality that goes on from body to body, life to life. And I think they're wrong, as I'm sure you do. But I just want to make a statement here that, to, to help, kind of help put things in context and see if you agree with it. And that is that... Um, what you have been doing most of your life, all these explorations, is obviously not incompatible with enlightenment or realization because that has dawned for you. So all of this was not a trap or an impediment or a, a distraction. It was, in, for you at least, conducive to the realization that eventually happened. I think maybe it can be a, a trap and a distraction and impediment for some people. They can get overly infatuated and, and distra you know, absorbed in it and spend a lot of time just sort of fooling around with woo-woo experiences and not getting right down to the core of things. So maybe there's that caution. But I don't think it has to be an all-or-nothing uh, proposition the way some people would suggest. 
you know, and there are people who are keen on Vedanta uh, who would just dismiss all of this discussion as irrelevant and, and um, superficial and just uh, a failure to go right to the heart of things. But you have to remember that you know Vedanta means the end of the Veda. So if you respect Vedanta, maybe you respect the the, the whole tradition which of which it is the end, and that tradition includes consideration of all kinds of possibilities and relative phenomena and subtle realms and higher states and astrology and you know health considerations and everything under the sun is because life is multidimensional and life can, contains so many different things it, even if you're enlightened you still have a body and that body probably needs food and it needs support and it, and and then you know once enlightenment has dawned or even before it has there is still the relative creation, is there not? And there can be value in acquiring knowledge of its various aspects. I yes. mean, there can be specific knowledge. I mean, maybe you're a scientist or a doctor, and there's a lot of knowledge you need, or a jet pilot or whatever. There are a lot of things you need to know and skills you need to acquire there, whether you're enlightened or not. But then there's, you know, in a more spiritual context, there's a, a huge, vast realm of possibilities that humanity in general is, is unaware of and unappreciative of, uh, appreciative of, which may actually have tremendous benefit for humanity if we were aware of it and if we understood it better. So enlightenment or awakening can be a platform on which that exploration can take place and we as a species can kind of grow up and become much more um, profoundly appreciative of the the beauty and diversity and subtlety of God's creation. So anyway, that's my little rant. I think I, I agree with every word you just said because, I mean, dismissing this is like dismissing life, you know, dismissing creation. We can't dismiss it because it's an intricate part of creation, you know, because I also found these experiences tremendously educational, you know, about... Yeah on all different kinds of levels. And one thing I find throughout all these experiences, we, we haven't even scratched this, the very surface of our human potential. It strikes me that we are sort of barely risen from the Stone Age. Yeah. You know, that, that our evolution hasn't even really begun as a human species. Just to interrupt one more time, then I'll let you go again. Would you agree then that spiritual development or evolution or enlightenment or whatever we want to call it, ideally might consist not merely, I say merely, of self-realization. I mean, self-realization is ordinarily considered a pretty big deal and you don't usually associate the word mere with it, but not merely of that, but that that could be, become a sort of a, a starter point or a foundation upon which all kinds of amazing possibilities for human development might be explored and unfolded. And that, that, that those might have huge implications for us, not only individually in the way we experience our life, but collectively, societally, in terms of what the quality of the society could aspire to and rise to, and technologies, and, you yes. know, I mean, look at all the suffering in the world for various reasons, and, you know, that suffering is very real for the people who are undergoing it. And personally, I feel that spiritual realization is the ultimate um, antidote to that suffering. And it might include more than just 
you know, self-realization. It might also include the discovery and application of a vast range of latent capabilities that are going to be much easier to unlock if the self has been realized. Yes. Uh, I never really could get my head around the idea of Buddhist teaching, for example, that you want to escape into nirvana or something like that. You know, I, I never really could embrace it because I could not, I cannot really separate the two, the creation. And, and when people say, oh, once you're enlightened, you never have to come back. I personally don't see that as an issue living in the whole of creation, the, all the realities. It doesn't necessarily mean I have to restrict myself to living in this physical place or in that physical place or anywhere else or be a, be a poor person or a rich person. It can, I can live in the whole spectrum of consciousness, which is literally infinite. And I've heard it suggested that the desire to not come back was perhaps the product of a society in which a tooth infection could kill you, in, in which there were, the quality of life was pretty brutal in, in some cases, and you think, I, I want to just get out of here and never come back. <laughs> yeah, I think this, this is probably the case, that the philosophy was, rose out of this understanding that people wanted to literally uh, disappear from the possibility of ever having to suffer the physical hardships ever again. But um, that's, uh, I mean, once you reach the true understanding of what reality is, it doesn't necessarily uh, remove the, the pain from your life on the conflicts, but it does put it on a completely new, uh, in a completely new perspective. So we actually have something we can work with and deal with, mm. and which will inspire us to achieve a greater evolution you know, and become a conscious part of the evolutionary process because we are part of nature. Yeah. And, and once we become a conscious part of this evolutionary process, it opens all, all kinds of doors for us. I mean, I've been on a higher, in these higher states of consciousness where I saw evolution taking place right at the primary stage where it was dealing with this uh, geometric shapes, the things starting to appear in a very, in a very abstract way, you know. And then soon, as soon as attention was focused from whichever angle, it crystallized into manifestation. And the manifestation process was so infinite and so beautiful. There were universes created on the fly and they disappeared again, okay. In, in front of my very eyes, I could see how this, how this huge creation process was unrolling and evolving and retreating. And even people had the power to, to manifest things and, and pull it back. And this enormous, infinite variety of what, what is possible was there for everybody to experience. And the thing is that once you become aware of all this, of the mechanics of creation, suddenly enormous opportunities become visible on the horizon. Yeah. And an understanding of how the world is put together and how it works, how our psyche 
functions, you know, because everything we, we do, everything we, we are, is basically nature growing and unfolding, even if it's insanity. It's just nature at work, doing its thing, you know. And the way I noticed how thoughts unfold and how thoughts are created is basically we're following a natural program. You know, we don't do anything unusual. We're just using the same mechanics nature at the highest level uses in order to manifest. We're using it to manifest thoughts and spin ideas and ideologies. Mm. You know? So we are very much part of nature. We just haven't realized it yet. Yeah, there's something that relates to this uh, and also relates to what, the point we were just making about not wanting to come back again. It seems to me that the attitude of not wanting to come back again is is oriented around a, a rigid sense of oneself as an individuality. I, this individuality, don't like this and I don't want to come back again. Whereas, uh, kind of a to me, a more a broader, deeper perspective would be after having been gobbled up by God, so to speak, which was the... the reference you made earlier that you felt like you're about to be gobbled up then you function and regard yourself more as an instrument of the divine and there's more of a, a sense of service and, and surrender and use me as you will whether I come back or not is not a big deal to me I, I'm happy to be an instrument in whatever way I can be yes because you're no longer so identified with a certain set of um, issues, you know, profession or anything like that. You are not no longer identified with anything. You are just a being state. Yeah. You know, you're just... Uh, there's nothing really to achieve or to do other than expressing of what you are, you know, and expressing yourself with joy from the state of being. And this, this is why I find it so beautiful because to explore our inner worlds because there's so much potential we don't know anything about. Um, we are just like robots. We are programmed by instincts and drives and traumas and experiences, and we have no control over these because they're just happening in some dark realm, and yet we are doing things to each other and, and uh, having opinions and, and likes and dislikes without having the slightest knowledge of how the, where these come from, how they're generated. But when we move consciously into the subconscious realm, we suddenly see everything in a multimedia presentation which we can deal with, which we can handle. You know, we can see the monsters which are haunting us. We can confront the monsters. We can pose questions. We can find answers, you know. To us, I mean, this is only a very recent uh, discovery which started this invention of psychology. Now we can actually, this lucid dreaming, and there are quite a few psychologies who use it as a gateway to, to an inner understanding of what we really are. We can use these inner words, you know, to actually function better as human beings. Mm. At the moment, we are just groping around in the dark. And a lot of things um, I found is when people do have the experiences, they very quickly jump to conclusions because they, they, they have an experience and then they think, oh, that's it. They enter a, a greater state of consciousness and suddenly more things become visible 
and, and they see the light and they immediately uh, think, oh yes, I know, I've got the truth now, I know what it's like. And they go out and, and preach their truth. You know, and before you know, you've got a new version of a religion or a cult or something, you know, and that happens quite, quite often rather than seeing that what they only have got from the whole of infinity was a minuscule fraction of a diamond which has got infinite facets, you know, and suddenly this, their attention is drawn towards this and suddenly it becomes a big thing. One of the things is, for example, near-death experiences, they find themselves very often in, in a state of uh, bliss and even cosmic consciousness, or that's how they would describe it. And then they come back and they feel they have got the whole picture, you know. And that is also an illusion. You don't ever get the whole picture because the universe is infinite. For example, some people say, I, I was attacked once when I, you know, because of what I wrote. You know, when you die, you don't automatically go into heaven or something like that. And people, you, you wrote that. Yes. I, right. I, like you might go into books, hell or something, right? The, the whole book is based about the continuation of the reality you foster during your waking life. Mm -hmm. So there's no miracle taking place that suddenly catapults you into heaven or into hell or whatever. It's just a natural uh, chain of events. It's a process of nature unfolding. And just because your physical body disappears doesn't make you a different person. Right. You know? So you carry over what you are and you are still dealing with it. And what happens when people have suffered a near-death experience quite often they are catapulted into a higher state of consciousness which allows whatever forces there are to, to administer some form of healing. healing. You know? Yeah, uh -huh. and I, th I think that's very often the case. They get catapulted out of the limitations of the physical and emotional uh, situation and they suddenly find themselves in, in a state of clarity. But then then they come back, okay, and then they have this awakening experience, and then it would be wrong for them to claim that when you die, you immediately uh, come into the presence of God and all is forgiven. You know, that's not, in my experience, at least that's not how I experience it. They may claim that because they had something of that nature in their experience, but it's not necessarily going to be the universal experience. No, that's, that's yeah. the, the, the reality is the reality. I mean, there's no getting away from it. If you start claiming that when you die, you get into heaven straight away, then you open the doors for people like ISIS to do whatever the hell they like sure. yeah. in this life because they know they're going to be safe. But in, in reality, psychology kicks in and, and the mechanism which is a very physical mechanism, works its way out so that people do actually are confronted with the energies they have set into motion, you know, and there's no getting away from it because where should these energies go? You know, you are sort of attached to these energy like a magnet and you will draw them towards you, you know, and you have to work with them. So the idea that when a, people die, when a person dies and people say, oh, he, he has peace now, he, 
rest in peace, is a big illusion. Reality just doesn't work like that, and, and uh, people may find that uh, objectionable to, to make statements like that because everybody is hoping when they die they are released from their misery. No, you have to still keep working, and you're still on your path. Okay, you've got new opportunities, and, and what I'm saying is based on, on hundreds of hours of experience where I interviewed people, where I talked to them, where I met my brother and my mother and talked in great detail, which I wrote documented in my book. So even after all this, I, I still feel I've barely scratched the surface of what is actually happening, you know. But it, it needs to be, we, we need to address these things in order to free ourselves of of these false ideas and these false uh, illusions, you know. I agree. I mean, if you look at old maps from like when Columbus first came or, you know, early explorers, and you look at maps of what they thought North America looked like, it's sort of funny. I mean, it's all distorted and weird, and they had no idea what was in the middle of the country or, you know, any place else. And uh, even Lewis and Clark, when they went across in, in the country in the mid-1800s, they, they had no idea what they were going to encounter and some of the mountain ranges they were going to have to go over and stuff. And, you know, these days with satellites and, and all, we have everything mapped out right down to the centimeter practically. We know precisely where everything is and exactly the, the whole topography is clear. So if we use that allegory or that metaphor to talk about the deeper realities of the universe, uh, there's a certain value in, in having things mapped out if you're going to try to travel to California. And like that, there's a value in understanding how the universe works, it seems to me, um, as a human being, uh, and when you die, and if you're interested in enlightenment, and, and all kinds of things. So I, th I think it would be really interesting and, and useful, and perhaps will happen over the years, if as a culture we map out the whole territory of all the, the realms and dimensions and subtle realities, and, and actually if enough people have the experiences so that we begin to get a kind of a, an agreement between various explorers I can imagine there must be cultures somewhere in this universe who have actually done that and who have as much clarity uh, with regard to all, the whole subtle range of life as we have with regard to the, the geography of North America. Yes, I think that's, that's actually one project which we have discussed on the forums. Uh -huh. we collectively should sort of collect all the experiences and just record them and unfortunately this project never really got off the ground. Yeah. But it would have been an enormous research tool for people, for explorers, to, to find where there is a common ground, what are common experiences. Yeah. So from your own experience, having done all the exploring you've done, if, if you were to take, let's say, the next five minutes and try to give us a synopsis of a guided tour of the universe in terms of how things are structured and all the various layers and realms and strata of creation. Could, could you do that? Yeah, only, only very quickly, really, because I think it's basically what the reality levels are, are reflections of our state of consciousness. So if we are identified with very physical pleasures and very physical aspects of ourselves, we attract on the next level when we die, the same sort of cir circumstances, you know, like 
pubs and clubs and whatever. Do we create fact, that or do we go to a realm where that's the way it is? That's already there because it has been a collective uh, construction yeah. you know, over generations. And, and the thing is, it is just as physical as this one. So people who have out-of-body experiences, they sometimes think they travel to another place in the physical reality. You know, and I wrote an article in, in a journal or a new book uh, explaining why that is not the case or cannot be the case. You know, so you, you have an out-of-body experience. You, you see buses and trains and taxis and pubs and people going shopping. And your, your instant re reaction is, okay, these are just another part of the world. You know, and closer inspection, you find that is not the case. It's basically the thought forms, the collective thought forms we created, the copy of what actually we experience in everyday life. So they're kind of like astral buses and taxis and trains. Yes, that's so right. They, they, you, they, do they burn astral gasoline and need astral yes. motor oil and so on? That, that was a... That was a um, there was a question I kept asking myself, you know, for example, I've, I've written about this in, in my book. There was, I, I was at a printing plant. There was a printer I knew um, who had died and, and he was still operating the printing plant. And I, I was very curious and I opened one of the lids to the engines and see, well, if it's a thought world, then it doesn't have any, any insights, it's just sort of generated print simply by the power of thoughts. But when I opened it, there was all the engine, the mechanism was all inside. And I, I tried to find some sort of explanation and I figured that um, what, it, what reality is, is basically a universal database and it comes into existence by expectation. You know, for example, if I, in one episode, I described that I saw a car which was out of the 20s, you know, and I said, oh, that feels really real, you know, let me go and have a look close up. And when I looked cl close up at the paintwork, I found there were these minute scratches you get when you polish a car, and I thought, that's incredible. Who could have thought about that? You know, how, how is this possible? You know, who is behind all this? And I found my explanation was that once, once we have a picture, we simply assemble, or, or the reality level assembles it from a database which is already in existence. You know, so um, it's basically like a, I feel like a hard drive. You know, where you where all the data are formed, and then when you look at it, it, it appears on the screen as a complete picture. And this is something that really needs to be investigated. And I believe that later, latest models about the holographic universe and that uh, the observer effect and all this sort of thing, I don't know much about the quantum mechanics of it, but this is very much an understanding we are arriving at, that the universe is not really in existence. It's just made out of atoms or energy. And the moment we are we look at it, we assemble it in our brain and complete it. These mechanics seem to be in existence and they are responsible of our experience of what we see. And yet there's a kind of a collective 
agreement on what we experience. You know, as you're driving down the highway and there's all these other cars, everyone is seeing basically the same highway, although their perception may differ, and they all stop at the same stoplights and things like that. So there's something more than just complete individual consciousness creating the world. Otherwise, we'd have total chaos. Yes, that's one thing which Robert Wagner, uh, he wrote the book, Lucy Dreaming, A Secret to the in a self or something, I think. He, he's a very, very good author, and he wrote in another book. But he, he said, we don't control the sea, you know, when we dream. We see a section of the sea, we can influence it, but this dream scenario we can't control. We can control aspects of our dreams, aspects of the reality. And there are so, so many multiple levels to this reality. There's the, the individual aspect which we generate from our subconscious. And even that seems to have a solidity which, which is difficult to ignore. Then there are other aspects, which is a consensus reality, which we enter into during an out-of-body state, where we meet other people that I can talk to my relatives. You know, and they live in an environment which is agreed upon, which is just as solid as this one, and which is even harder to change than we are able to change the physical environment because it has been solidified by the focus and the attention of generations of people. You know, so my my eldest daughter, she went through a period where she could out of body had out of body experience, and I, I asked her to do a test. And I said, can you change the environment next time you have an out-of-body experience? See if you can change the environment. And she came back, she said she found, I think it was a fountain, and she tried to change it and she succeeded. But as soon as her attention was withdrawn, it changed back to how it was before. So there is this consensus reality which feels very, very physical to the people who live there, which uh, they are just as exposed to as we are on this level you know okay so about about five or ten minutes ago i asked you about all right if you were to map out the whole range of creation and we've been now we've been talking about what probably is a fairly preliminary level of creation you know the place that people commonly go when they die and they have this consensus reality there but there must be many 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 more and higher if we want to use the word higher strata uh, yes, so it, can, can it, you kind of just quickly map out some of that? Yes, the, the thing is, of course, as, as your uh, consciousness becomes more elevated, you become, your experiences become more positive, you get into more elevated, beautiful realms, which are also much more pliable, you know, much more, less rigid, uh, and, and more, much more beautiful. And your consciousness, your awareness sort of, expands out, you know, you become more linked to what you see, you get more of a rapport with your environment on the very, on the highest of the lower dimensions, you will get into a state of incredible fluid synchronicity. Now we're going to, one thing we're going to do is perhaps um, paste in some of your paintings in this interview, and maybe, maybe this would be a good point to to show some as we're talking, you know, just as kind of, I think by your own admission, you feel that they're pretty poor representations of what is actually there, but, you know, doing the best you can with paint uh, to, to give yes. people an idea of it. Yes, I try, I try to use pictures 
because it's a natural medium for me to get some sort of representation of these realities. One thing which becomes increasingly clear as you get in, out of the very basic physical type levels, it becomes much more dynamic, the reality, you know. Uh, you become aware of many more colors. On the, on the basic level, everything is sort of represented very much like the physical world. People look the same. As you move higher to more elevated levels, you find that the people become more attractive, more beautiful. The nature becomes more beautiful, more profuse. You get more vibrant colors. Uh, you, get, um, you get more harmonics in nature. You know, uh, the, the, the interesting thing is how, how the uh, environment reflects back on how you feel you get into environments which evoke feelings in you, which you just simply cannot experience in the physical body. You know, for example, you could have a melancholic happiness, if you want, mm. want for a better word, you know. And that is expressed in the environment as a sort of lilac-y, purple mist or atmosphere. There's a, there's a strange river flowing through, which, which forks off into the distance. And, and you get a feeling of a of a completely new experience of something you, you have never experienced before. Hmm. So, so this, this new type of experience increase as, as you get into higher states of consciousness. Everything uh, unfolds, becomes more luminous, becomes richer, and, and your connection to this world becomes more intense and more you feel more at home. That's one thing which is, is very powerful. The, the higher you go through the levels, if you like, the more you feel at home. There's a feeling of coming home. And this feeling of homecoming intensifies and is a good marker of how close you are to your uh, core consciousness, you know, to the unity consciousness, if you like. Are these um, higher realms um, populated by a variety of species, just the way the Earth is, or are there birds and other kinds of animals and whatnot, um, as well as human-type beings? Yes, absolutely. I would say there are even much greater variety of species. Mm -hmm. there. You know, it's it's almost as if uh, it trickles down, and on the pro on the way down to the physical level, it sort of is is uh, narrowed down. You know. And, and there's less variety. So I, I drew a picture of a multidimensional model where you increasingly find that there's a counterpart to the physical realm, there's a counterpart on a, on a higher dimensional level, uh, which is much bigger, if you like. You know, so there's a bigger, uh, there would be a bigger uh, Jupiter or whatever. Maybe there will be additional moons. Which, which don't show up on the physical level. And on the very highest level, there's an infinite variety. And the way I mapped out the uh, multidimensional levels was that I found when I started off in my bedroom and had an out-of-body experience, I ended up in a copy of the bedroom. Mm. And then on the next level, the bedroom may disappear and there may be... Uh, a different, a different apartment, but it's beautifully furnished. But I still recognize it as my bedroom. 
And then on the next level, the house may have disappeared. There's just an orchard, but it still feels like my bedroom. There's a, there's a fam familiarity or uh, an energetic imprint, uh, which still has got the original identity of, of what is about. So I could identify localities by the atmosphere. So I don't know if this question makes sense, but um, in terms of what you just said, if, if right, sitting right where you are in that room, if you were to go to higher and higher and higher levels, uh, would, you, would you actually still be in the same place, but would you be um, kind of exploring uh, subtler realms or sudden, subtler levels of that same place, which the more subtle you go, bear less and less resemblance to the gross physical place in which you're now sitting? Yeah, that's right. So they may actually totally disappear. And I'm, I experience and test it on, on different levels, you know, where there was, for example, a pub on a place that suddenly became a shop on the next day, and then it was part of a park. But uh, I went to Hamburg. I had a lot of positive memories with Hamburg when I went to art school there. And I, I visited the astral counterpart, there of the art school because I used to hang around there, and on one on one level I was coming out of the art school and I was and outside the art school there's a little lake, kind of river feeding a lake, and that that lake suddenly was much bigger, and the benches went there they were sort of monoliths, mm -hmm. and the art school had changed but I still recognized I still identified it. And so this, this gave me the idea that there are, we live in a multidimensional universe where every atom has got a counterpart or has got an origin on a higher level or in, in pure consciousness. And it filters down and it manifests in different shapes in different ways without losing its original identity, if you like. So, so every, every object has a soul. So on that note, if uh, sometimes if I interrupt with a, I'm going to ask you more questions now. But if I ask one and you really want to finish saying what you're saying, let me know because I don't want to leave out something important. But you were talking about Jupiter, for instance, a minute ago, and um, you know ordinarily we think, all right, the Earth is the only planet in this solar system where there can be life. Everything else is too inhospitable to life so there, there could be no life on the sun for instance or on mercury or on venus but if you go to subtler levels do you find that those places are actually teeming with life yes I, yes i mean i can only only talk from the experiences which i made and, and one of the planets i visited was venus and i found venus was actually populated and had a very highly evolved civilization there, you know, I know it sounds nuts. And I well, on the gross level, it's eight or nine hundred degrees, so it, you couldn't live yeah. there. But well, on the subtle level, on the subtle level, it's in, it's habitable, and it is actually inhabited. And I, I try not to sort of go into these areas because um, when I first had these experiences, people sort of say, "Oh yeah, here's your and here's sort of <laughs> on Mars again," you know. So I keep keep quite strong about it, but. Also, in my, in my latest book, I was quite bold about this because I have 
reported some instances where I had previous lives on different civilizations, different planets, describing their technology and everything, you know. And also, in one of the experiences, I was taken away by a, an alien species. You oh, know, yeah, I started reading that bit. You're on like a flying carpet or something that went to they, light, you know, many times the speed of light to a different place. Yes, that's right. And, and that was a very fascinating experience because that, that demonstrated two things to me, that there is uh, other intelligent life which may not even manifest on a physical planet, on a physical ground. And also they've got totally different civilizations and different ways of procreation and things like that. And I was sort of invited on this journey with these species and I tried to be as authentic and as accurate as I was capable of. And I, all along the way I wondered, can I actually write that without, without being uh, told that I'm imagining it or it's a fantasy and people say, oh yes, he is a fantasy illustrator, he made it all up. Yeah. But it has just the same, it has had just the same reality as I'm living here in the physical world, the same tangibility and the same waking awareness with which I observed it, you know, it's everything else. I have a question so, about that incident. I don't know if you can answer this, but um, according to Einstein, you know, if we were to travel that fast, then relativistic time dilation would come in, you know, Einstein's twin paradox, uh, twins paradox. And if we came back from such a trip, we would find that everyone, everything around us had, you know, many years had gone by, whereas for us, it might have just been a short amount of time. Did you consider that with, in light of that experience? Well, I mean, I see, I see things... Uh, I, I'm not a very uh, scientifically-minded person. I'm more of an artist, you know. Okay. But uh, the way I see time, for example, um, which has also been hinted at, for example, karma and reincarnation, all these issues, I can explain it from my own experience that we have, we can travel back in time. I haven't been able, I have been able to travel into the future, but not in the same tangible way I've traveled into the past or visited a past life. I've written about it briefly in my book, The Ten Minute Moment. But maybe the future is still, you know, to be determined or, you know. Yes, yes, it's, it's, there are so many factors which is unrolling in the same way as a plant grows. You know, if you put a bit of acid on the plant, it will not grow or something like that, you know. So that's basically a growth process, whereas, whereas uh, the past is already there, you know, you can visit, and you can actually visit in such a way that you are there. Well, one issue that science fiction writers have dealt with a lot is if you can go to the past, can you change anything there? And if you change things, what's that going to do to the present? I mean, do you have much volition when you go to these? Past no, things? it doesn't happen on a on a physical level. It happens on a on a memory level. And the best way I can describe it was from my own experience that I I went into a past life, and it started off that I was walking through a mud. And as I looked down on my body, I found that my clothes were quite different to what they are now. And I noticed I was, I had a sword and I had armor and, uh, and a, a very coarsely knitted coat 
and I identified it as, as a medieval type of character I was. And as I was trudging through the mud, I suddenly became privy of the experiences this person had and the mind content. So at that moment, there were two of me. There was the observer and the person experiencing it. Okay, And I was totally involved in the experience the person had, but I was also conscious that I was lying in bed and there was an observer part of me, so there were three aspects of me. There was the observer, the person who had the experience, and the physical body which was lying in bed. And all the time I was walking along with him, there was no way I could influence him. Mm. He was totally oblivious of me. So and let's say that happened 500 years ago, and you were walking along through the mud there, and do, do you think that from that guy's perspective, if he had been aware of it, if he had been capable of being aware of it, he would have realized, whoa, some, you know, some being from the future, hey, it's me, is watching me walk along through the mud here. I mean, was there actually that kind of uh, dynamic going on? I, my feeling was when I was this guy, there was no possibility of me being aware of well, it. No, he wasn't aware of it, but 500 years ago, as that guy was walking through the mud, were you actually there checking him out on some subtle yes. level, which someone, if, if he had been capable or someone else had been capable of experiencing it, they would have actually observed? Well, it was, it felt so physical. There was no doubt about it in my mind that I wasn't experiencing it as him. It was a real life present experiencing. You know, it was almost as if I had been transported back in time, and that was a present awareness. There was no getting away from it. And that was not the only occasion. I had several other occasions where I was transported back in time in a different uh, life, in a different body. And one stage, I was on a council in an Peruvian uh, empire you know, where we were just debating whether we should allow the savages to come into the town or whether we should keep them at arm's length. And then it was decided that the savages uh, were quite useful to the townspeople because they would make cheap labor. And in order to discriminate them, we would, we, they would be dressed in trousers, which was not a kind of clothing which the, the um, in, townspeople would wear. And I experienced a whole episode in, in, one, in one go, and I was not sure that was a wise idea. And what happened gradually, these people became very unhappy being treated the way they were. And soon enough, uh, they opened, found weaknesses in the fortification, and then the whole empire went to pieces when the others heard about it and so on. So I had this whole episode unrolling in front of me, but at the same time, at each moment, I was aware of sitting there in the flesh, aware of the clothes I wore, the dialogue going on between us, the animosity and the tension that felt just as, as uh, real as I was, as it would if I sit in a boardroom meeting on a physical planet and discussing it, you know. So that to me, that is sort of Akashic the reality of the Akashic Records is, is an actual experience. It's not a vision. It's not something which we, we think about, but it's an actual experience. And that can be experienced during out-of-body 
states of consciousness. So a few minutes ago we were talking about all these different levels and you were saying that the higher you go, the more beautiful it gets and the more malleable it is, the, more, the less rigid or calcified things are. Do you get to a point as you go higher and higher where the dwellers of that realm are dwelling there more or less eternally and are not going to have to come back to the human realm? That's, that's a sort of a permanent abode? Or are all these places just sort of temporary abodes which we'll eventually have to shift out of and, and experience other things? Well, the experience I had of, as you, as you get into higher levels, there comes a stage which where your self-identification somehow has to be surrendered, you know, your ego identification. And that is a point where you then enter into a much higher state of a type of spiritual consciousness. And then things really become very interesting because uh, your, your awareness is no longer, longer limited by an identification. You're much more in a state of fluid consciousness. But there must be some, I don't know if we call it identification, some sort of sense of this is me and this is yeah. you and this is yes, him. Yes. Because otherwise, if it's just totally amorphous... But there's still a sense of individuality, uh-huh. very much so. But not know. at all predominant or limiting. No, I mean, there's still people, still people who are dis, discreet uh, and distinct. Yeah, and representing themselves in the same way as we do. But... Um, in a much more creative way, if you like, or more uh, inventive way, because they've got more options at their disposal. You know, for example, the clothes you wear, they may change to the kinds of thoughts you have. And the buildings you occupy, they're usually a very close representations of what you are like, you know, the person you are like. But in a higher evolved state, so they're very symmetric, very beautiful. You know, but you can immediately see if you come to a certain building what kind of person inhabits it. Mm. You get the whole atmosphere, the whole imprint. And there's an affinity between the individuals. So you can have an instant communication just by looking at their building. And you then inhabit their thoughts instantly. You know, and there's no, no objection, no division. There's always a, a friendly positive vibration because on these levels there just simply is no negativity mm. you know everything is thinking in a in a harmonious interplay which uh, which is very fluid and very beautiful and always enhancing mm. you know this is aspect of enhancement that of, of positivity and people, used to refer to the the, the ground state of creation as the field of all possibilities because nothing has manifested yet so anything can manifest yes and yes. then the more things manifest the more kind of limited it becomes in turn and, and physics actually has corresponding understanding that you know the vacuum state or the unified field is uh, contains all potential you know, manifest states but that once manifestation proceeds then greater and greater rigidity prevails the more manifest things become Yes, that's very much the case. I also found um, on the higher levels, there's a, this trickle-down effect. For example, you see another very important aspect is thought, thought forms, un- unmanifested thoughts, of thoughts which are 
which have an abstract quality to themselves. So they, these thoughts create abstract shapes, which are very beautiful to behold, but they express perfectly the quintessence of that thought simply by looking at it, the structure, and listening to the sound they gave, give, and the animation. So, so you instantly apprehend the thought in its entirety, and that can be a whole ideology. Yeah manifested in a shape, almost like a big city or something. I was supposed to interview David Spangler last week, who was one of the founders of Findhorn, uh, but he had a health crisis, and hopefully we'll reschedule him soon. But he said that when he went to high school and started studying geometry, he went deep into it, and he discovered that the various forms in geometry actually have an archetypical intelligence fundamental to them. And you know he found that incredibly fascinating that that there's they're not just sort of inanimate forms but they're they're kind of surface representations of deeper impulses of intelligence that structure or govern the, the universe. Yes, that's a, that's a one of the key things which I found that there is no such thing as inanimate matter. Everything <laughs> is intelligent driven. Yes, you know. And, and there's no exception to it, and uh, it's, it's just incredible. I mean, I, I once posed the question while I was there, you know, what is the ego, you know, and, and how does the ego come about, and why do we have an ego? And, and suddenly, when, when you have these questions on these dimensional levels, you don't just get an answer, you get a multimedia slideshow. You know, and it has got sound and everything. And I suddenly was uh, confronted with an infinite web of a tapestry where each aspect of the tapestry led into the neighboring part and it created a beautiful carpet or an infinite carpet. And as I honed in at each ornament, if you like, which formed one pattern of the whole web, I found from that viewpoint, everything spread out. The whole universe unfolded around it. So the person who was at the center of each one of these, let's say, crystals or snowflake crystals, you know, which was uh, the one aspect of this infinite pattern, they saw their universe coming, expanding from their, their cell out into the open. And I suddenly had a clear picture. This is how every person sort of perceives themselves. Every person can consider themselves quite rightly the center of the universe because that is their experience. When they look out from their standpoint, they see everything spreading out from them, their friends and everything, they are individual and they are unique. They, there's no doubt about this, and they're, they're, they're the most important person in the world. Mm -hmm. And all, all the things around them, they identify it, and they build their self-identity from this information they feed from around them. And so they, they, get in, they establish an ego identification, because they see themselves as the center of the universe. And that doesn't only apply to human beings, that applies to every plant, every animal, every ant, every atom in the universe. Everything. Some, some spiritual teachers use the phrase life without a center. Jeff Foster uses that and others. 
in your experience, if the ego has been seen through, is there a sense that life doesn't have a center? Oh, yeah, I mean, what, what is happening is uh, I try as much as possible only talk of what I have experienced. And I have, in one of the descriptions in my latest book, This is of Infinity, I had an experience where I saw myself as an expanded pattern, just the way I described it. But this pattern was not just two-dimensional, it was a three- or four-dimensional thing which contained lives on other planets. I could zoom into each aspect of these patterns which I was made of, and I could easily see the relationship to my core self-awareness or my core being awareness, you know. And the history this has, this that was created, I could see the weak points, I could see the strong points, I could, could see how it connected in the past to other patterns and so on. The whole thing for me was visible simply because I had a kind of more elevated viewpoint as a being, from a being state. Mm. I was not necessarily identified with it, but there was still a, a strong connection as an individual, whereas my, my self-awareness was shifted onto a more universal level. But there was still uh, an appreciation of this individual aspect, which I had been nurturing, you know. When you were a student and much younger, did you go through a psychedelic phase? Yes, I mean, um, when I was very young, I mean, in my early 20s, before... Did you have pretty far-out experiences with that? Yeah, when LSD was still legal, let's say. We went through, um, through a stage which lasted about six months or so, where every month we would, we would read Aldous Huxley, and we would uh, experiment we didn't see ourselves as drug heads. No, I mean, you have pretty amazing experiences as a non-drug-using person, you know, meditating and OBE and all that. Back when you were using drugs, were you the envy of your friends in terms of how, how amazing your experiences were? I sometimes was surprised that they didn't see what I saw. On some of these drug experiences, I could see through the ground, yeah. you know, I had telescopic visions and things. I just took it in my stride, but you also had these revelations, you know, of, of a, a newness of uh, awareness and all these sort of things. Of course, these kind of experiences have very much manifested now, I find, but they are more a kind of everyday experience. For example, when I, when I go out of the house to get milk to the shop, which, which I've done hundreds of times, I always consider this to be a unique and new experience. Right, as a freshness. Yes, there's no familiarity as such. Yeah, well, you know how to find the store, but there's, a, there's not the sort of uh, habituated way of perceiving the world, right? I mean, there's an innocence and a freshness. Yes, yes, everything, everything is a first, you know, it's new, yeah. it's an experience. So you don't fall into the pattern of, of referring to what you have learned or what you've known and made it into a cliche. Yeah. You know, that's sort of 
ability or disability has sort of been stripped away, and instead you'll see things fresh, conditioned. I mean, so there's some conditioning is useful. You don't have to learn how to drive a car every day or how to brush your teeth or something, but I think that there's a difference between that kind of conditioning or learning and any sort of um, habituation that has taken place, that takes place through you know, repeatedly being identified or overshadowed by experience. Yeah, I think, I mean, even brushing your teeth is a, is a new experience. There's an aspect which, uh, which somehow strings all this together in an automatic way, which uh, we rely on a part of our nervous system, which is actually programmed to, to make sense, you know, to, is this another aspect of ourselves which we allow to control the control uh, of, of the learning and things, you know, for example, when I, when I write do some illustrations, I rely on the fact that I know how to use the tools. Yeah. So on, that doesn't disappear. But at the same time, you can actually have a new input during this process. If you walk along to the store, instead of thinking, oh yes, I know that, uh, you know, you don't look at it like that. I, I had a funny experience when I went to Hamburg in the summer. We went over to the Baltic Sea and we were looking at the sunset, you know, and one person, he was wandering off, he said, Herbert, come here, come here, look at the sunset. He said, no, I've seen it before. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, so it's, this sort of thing doesn't um, apply anymore because yeah. you see things with fresh eyes and that is what makes life so enjoyable. Yeah. It's not only that, but, but because there is the absence of fear or the absence of alienation, because you recognize what you're experiencing is all part of who you are. Mm -hmm. you know, the, the alienation has been taken out of your life and suddenly you are always on familiar ground, so to speak. You know, the way I describe it sometimes is, is the, the world becomes an extension of your living room. Nice. You know, feel you feel it's familiar ground. There's no otherness in a sense, yeah. and that makes it really enjoyable. There's and, a Sanskrit and, saying that goes something like uh, Vasudev Tukumbakam, which means the world is my family. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's this familiarity which is so beautiful, yeah. and I think in this is rooted the the spiritual idea that we're all a family, that we all belong together, you know. There's an interesting person. paradox here because in a minute a minute ago you were saying, well everything is fresh and unique and like it's the very first time. On the other hand there's this familiarity, the world is my family and so that's an interesting juxtaposition. Yes, I think that is fed from the through the fact that we realize the essence. But the essence in everything is also reinventing itself. It's all always refreshed from the inside. The energy is mm. poured out. So nothing is ever static. So we're picking up on the on the core aspect of the essence of this energy. And of course within it is, is a bliss aspect. So not only do we see the beauty of it, while we're observing the beauty, there's also a, a blissful experience associated to it. So I, I always look at things as 
the world is basically covered, bliss covered in appearance. So at various points as you walk through the world, you pierce the world and the bliss pours out. The bliss is always there and you cannot really escape it. You just have to pop it out and pop out. And you can do that by observing uh, somebody smiling in a supermarket, you know, to or a conversation and you think, oh, that's really beautiful, you know, and suddenly you see the bliss underneath it. This makes this togetherness sort of come about. And the surface is peeled away from the world, you know, and you see what's underneath it, the, the, the beauty that carries it, or the eternal beauty that has no destruction associated to it. A couple of people sent in questions. Here's one from Catherine in Liverpool. She asked, and this, is, this relates to what you're just saying, I think, have you ever seen anything appear in this dimension from another? I'm not sure exactly what she had in mind when she asked the question, but we might say that that bliss you were just describing belongs to another dimension, and yet you're saying that it becomes characteristic of this so-called dimension all the time. Yes, I mean, this is basically, that's the experience I, I mostly have, but I, I think she may be referring to ghosts or people. Or yeah, or, or an angel showing up, or maybe she's yes. thinking of that kind of thing. Yes, I... I haven't personally experienced entities because what what I see is is basically physical matter mm -hmm. in its primary condition, you know, in its primary state. I'm I'm a very practical sort of down to earth, reality focused person, you know, and I I somehow I'm only really clairvoyant when I'm out of my body. That's interesting. I mean, I know people who are sort of clairvoyant in their body, so to speak. In other words, they see angels and subtle beings all the time as they walk through the supermarket or, you know, do anything. But in your case, it seems like you have to kind of go there to, yes. to see them. And when you're here, you don't see them. No, no, that's right. I mean, I'm quite, I'm quite sort of coarse kind of person. <laughs> Rooted <laughs> in this physical reality. Oh and, yeah, you're uh, a regular British soccer fan. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> so uh, no, that's that's very much the case. But then I'm out of my body. Yeah, I become highly clairvoyant. You know. Do you feel like a desire or any movement in the direction of integrating it such that you would be perceiving these other realms while you were functioning in this realm? I have no interest in. Really, and it sounds absurd on the basis of what we just discussed. I have no interest really in out-of-body experiences because I find this reality offers so much content and beauty and fullness that I have no desire to reproduce it on another level or so. You know, yeah. the attraction has, has almost faded. The only time I have out-of-body experiences now is, for, for example, when a close relative dies, yeah. a friend, or if there's a strong motivation, or if there is a, a call from a greater perspective right. to me to, to learn something. But as far as I'm concerned, it is really basically not, not necessary to have 
out-of-body experiences. Yes, yeah. and so in, you your, know, in your case, done that, been there, as they say. <laughs> yes, it's, it's more, I'm, I'm addicted to reality, basically. I'm, I, I really enjoy being where I am yeah. and embracing it, you know, even if it's sometimes painful, you know. So, so that's uh, where I'm at the moment. I, I don't know what's going to happen, whether there is a need for, for me to do further exploration. With my latest book, I did feel there was a need for education, but I since found out that only a handful of people are interested. <laughs> so it's not going to be widely, um, widely become by knowledge. You know, that was a hope that people... Uh, the millions of people who are stranded on the lower levels, that they get a preview of what they can do in order to get move fast through the lower levels and get a much more enjoyable life out of the after. Yeah, that was one of the uh, things really that I intended writing it. Here's a question from my wife Irene. She says, in Hindu scriptures, there's a mention of lokas or spheres. Or sometimes it's, I think they mean realms, or even they sometimes refer to them as worlds, various lokas, like, you know, Krishna loka and whatever. Does Jurgen feel that this relates to his travels in any way? Yeah, I mean, there are so many different realms which are uh, created by a consensus, a preference of people, you know, whether gyrate around a certain, like, like a certain town, which has got certain distinct characteristics. There are tourist centers, <laughs> which I described in, in my book, you know, but they are also quite beautiful thought words or realms where people are interested in a certain subject and expand it into a complete world or universe, you know, which may have even a, a quite a tangible characteristic in color. It may be like a bluish tint world, you know, where you can feel there's a certain consensus, mm -hmm. a certain interest, and, and there are an infinite variety of these types of locals. The same applies on the negative levels as sure, well. They yeah. have very negative mm -hmm. centers. Jesus said, in my Father's house there are many mansions. I believe that's the, the quote. Yes, you know, just yes, all these yes. different affinity groups, you could say. You know, if, yes. you, if you have a certain quality or characteristic that you've brought, you know, that you've kind of like uh, reinforced in your life, then you will, birds of a feather flock together, you'll, you'll yes. find your affinity group. And I think that's where you feed from. You know, if you're, if you're an artist and you are interested in in modern or in cubism, you know, you you probably connect to the cubist sort of city on the islands. <laughs> That'd be a weird place. You get your inspiration from there. If you're in certain types of music, you know, you yeah. will probably feed from these thought forms mm. on higher energy levels. You know, be enriched by them. Here's a question from Mark in Santa Clara, California. He asks, "Do you have any intuition as to what binds the consciousness to a particular body?" Does some bodily identification have to remain for a particular incarnation to remain coherent? Yeah, I think um, what, what keeps people fixated in certain conditions is basically they haven't dealt with their fixations properly. Is that what he means? Uh, I think that what he means is 
Well, the second part of his question makes more sense to me than the first part, and Mark is welcome to send in a clarification, but uh, does some bodily identification have to remain for a particular incarnation to remain coherent? In other words, if you had no bodily identification whatsoever, how could you live? How would you dress? How would you eat? How would you prevent yourself from walking into walls? There needs to be some sense that, oh, this... This is a body. Yeah, I need to take care of this body. I need to feed it. I, I don't need. I don't want to put my hand on the stove and things like that. You know. Yes, I think there's an inner program. There's a physical program. There's an emotional program. There's an intuitive program, and all these things create the organism, which we call human. You know, the only difference is if you are fully aware, you are not identified with this aspect exclusively. You only see it as an aspect of the whole of you, of who you are, you know, and you, you will nurture it, you will look after it, uh, you will do the best to, to make it work properly. So, so you take advantage of all the functions which are inherent in the structure, the biological structure of the body and the mental and emotional structure, and you make sure it runs properly. So there's no no way you can run into a wall or something just because you've got your your consciousness is expanded and encompasses more rather than the physical you know and the physical mechanism so you have got an additional quality of a higher expanded awareness where you see your physical entity as as an apparatus which you you maintain to the best of your ability. So we've been going on for quite a while, and there are so many interesting things in your book. I, I, in your books, um, and I think that you know perhaps we could conclude um, by. I mean, it seems like your current emphasis ha has left behind a lot of the things that fascinated you when you were younger. Like you were just saying, OBEs don't excite you that much anymore. And here's a quote from your book where you say, meditation can take you far beyond any out-of-body state and be far more rewarding. Meditation can teach you that you are consciousness and everything else is an image, little more than a projection or an illusion. In our physical life, we only see the tip of the iceberg. Our greater reality is an awe-inspiringly immense, is magnificent. In comparison to what our true potentials are as a species, we are little more than slugworms rising from the mud. <laughs> And here you say, at the moment I am interested in the mechanics of the higher states of consciousness beyond the out-of-body state. So it seems like you've kind of, OBEs were a tool for you, and you've pretty much relinquished them. And, and since most people aren't going to have the facility for OBEs that you have had, I've never had, well, I don't think I've ever had one. I've had a couple little things, but nothing much, even though I've been meditating for 48 years. What advice would you give spiritual seekers in general? Would you advise them to meditate? If so, how? Would you encourage them to explore um, out-of-body experiences or astral travel or any of that stuff? I mean, you know, uh, somebody just kind of starting out or, or maybe who's been interested in this stuff for a while but feels like they have not really gotten too far yet, what, what direction would you point them in? Well, I, I personally... I'm a firm believer in in reality as it presents us, you know, as it's presented to us. Um, 
And I feel that the crux of meditation is to become aware and embrace what is, you know, rather than... I mean, what you said earlier, to a certain extent, is true. Why do we want to seek something for its own sake, unless it's part of our past, you know, unless it's given to us? And there's a clear mandate that this is the way we should explore our individuality or our life and find our way to, to the greater consciousness. I think the past are as infinite as people are, so everybody has to find their own way. But to me, the most primary, the thing of most importance is to find my way to the being state of how it presents itself at this moment. And, and not exclude anything, but to me meditation means to say, to accept what is, and what's and all, you know, and to find the inner aspect of what presents itself and find a relationship to this inner aspect, you know, and that can, and that I feel is the only way we can overcome all the different uh, hardships and problems we have created for ourselves, to find the essence of the reality of how it presents itself and relate to it rather than see it as part of ourselves, rather than pushing it to one side and saying, oh, that's not for me, that's not my problem. And that's very much the way I see it. And, and all through my life, I, I always welcomed the idea of being shown the reality, you know, of, of things, because I always felt it brings me closer to the truth, you know, if, I, if I'm able to embrace reality rather than reject it. And I still feel, feel like that. Here's a question from Dan in London. Um, he says, do you feel that there are different consensus realities on higher levels that are associated with different religions, such as a reality associated with the teachings of Jesus or a different one with Krishna? And I might add to this question and ask, do some, are some consensus realities closer to the truth than others? Yeah, that is a big question, really. I have a lot of arguments with, or discussions with people. My personal feeling is that the moment we create an ideology or religion, we, we sort of tend to remove ourselves from the original blank sheet or the uh, the pure the clarity aspect which which I find will always fail to be dressed in adequate words or a philosophy. There may be people who take this there may be philosophies or religions who take this into account and say, okay, we have got this belief, but in the end, it comes down to the experience of the reality which supersedes what our philosophy is all about. But rarely, religions rarely do that. They, they always want to put themselves into the center of a world picture, a world view, because people have the natural tendency to want to be identified with something. You know, they want to have a, a, an identity. So, because the only way you can transcend it is by getting into a state of, of unity consciousness, or much greater identity, which is clarity, 
you know, which supersedes everything. And then you don't have any problems or you don't make any assumptions that uh, one thing is bigger or better than another thing. You know, you just see things the way they are. And, and then, then you don't have any desire to create a philosophy out of it because in the end you know very well it boils down to your own experience. Yeah. We better wrap it up pretty soon because it's getting dark over there. <laughs> We're going to be sitting in the yes. dark pretty soon. Um, so maybe a, here's an interesting wrap-up topic and uh, I'll let you riff on this a little bit. And, and that is that in one of your books I was reading about your some experiences you had which gave you a vision of the future, what, what the future of humanity might be. Maybe you could just give us a glimpse of your sense of that and you know how maybe at the same time how, how certain you feel it, it is or whether it's just one possibility and it could really go the other way if, if we don't play our cards right. Yes, I think, I think my, this was an experience I had on the morning of my retreat on one of the mornings when I suddenly had a clear impression of what our future may actually be and I saw it in a very, very positive way unfolding, you know, and I saw that the technology we are already creating is going to largely help us out of the sinkhole, you know, and uh, there are things uh, which are in progress at the moment which will make it possible to create energy which is not dependent on massive installations, but energy which can be local. Now that is something that is already in existence, but my view of it, or the picture of it, I've been confronted with, and it was not in a sense like an out-of-body experience, uh, where I was physically there, it was more a knowingness, you know, which I could access. And that was pointed to a very bright, positive future, you know, which was, it came in two parts. One was perhaps within the next hundred years that society was completely changed because uh, the parameters have changed, the awareness has changed, and we are just at the beginning of such a change. Uh, as you have mentioned several times in your talks, there's an awakening taking place where we become more cognizant of our real identity. And this, this is this sort of awareness will be rolled out in much the same way as the awareness that the Earth is a globe was rolled out over over the decades and, and at some point it will actually be taken for granted. And then the mindset will change and people will harness their intellect and their knowledge to bring uh, the community sense of our species more into the fore and make us more a better functioning civilization. And that was a very strong picture which I feel very positive about, you know, that these things are happening. I didn't see at any stage a destruction or global catastrophe at all. That's good. So you don't think that things are going to get worse before they get better and that global warming might kill billions of people or some such thing. You think that uh, it's just going to and obviously you don't think Donald Trump will be elected president. You think things are just kind of, kind of getting... <laughs> I have to say, I can't be sure. I can't be sure because, especially with people like Donald Trump, he seems to be personifying the ultimate ego. You know? It may just be that we need to be confronted 
there's an external representation of our ego before we actually see the light. Yeah. You know, and that seems to be uh, the case. Uh, the, the philosophy is make Donald Trump great again, so we can <laughs> <Right>. see, <laughs> so we can see our ego, you know, more clearly. Who knows what way we we try to find in order to see the light? I have no idea. But uh, the danger is by making any predictions of any sort that we become complacent and then say, oh, well, everything is going to be fine. I don't think it is the case. You know, as I said earlier in a, in a metaphor, you know, if the plant grows and we pour acid on it, it may quickly die. So that's, that applies everything we do. You know, we have got to be vigilant, we have to be alert, we have to nurture the growth in a very careful, positive way, yeah. you know. Yeah. So, so predictions aren't, put, aren't certainties, they're possibilities. Yes, yes, that's how I, I would say yeah. it is. All right, well, great. There's so many more things we could talk about, but we're entering into record interview length territory at this point, and we should probably wrap it up. So thank you so much for this conversation. I've really appreciated it and appreciated getting to know you a little bit. Very kind of, uh, I like these sort of visions of possibilities kinds of discussions, you know, as opposed to people who are saying, well, it's only this and blah. Um, but it's, it's like, yes, but it's this and, you know. Um, so I really appreciate your, your perspective in that way. Uh, and it's obviously based in, in experience. You're not just sitting there philosophizing and speculating. No, no. It's good. Try try to stay away from that. You know, it's yeah. got to be have a ground somewhere. Yeah. So as always, I'll be creating a page on BatGap for this interview, and you know, putting some biographical information, links to your website, links to your books, uh, anything else that you've asked me to link to, so people can who are listening to this can go to that and uh, follow those links. So thank you very much, Jürgen, and um, thanks to those who, are, who have been listening or watching. And you know the usual things I say at the end about check out the website and all the different menus and you know past interviews, future interviews, donate button, all that. Yeah, I've said it many times, so you know how to do that. So, so thanks a lot, and we'll see you all next time. Thanks, Rick. You're very welcome.